Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, we got some visitors with us. Uh, if you are visiting, so good to have you with us and so glad that you've come to share in our time of worship this morning. Hope you'll come again. Uh, as Terry mentioned, after we're dismissed, uh, we're going to go across the street, have some time together where we can get to know you better, you can get to know us better. And if you like what you see, which I'm sure you will, then you'll come back and we'll get to see you more and more. So we enjoy that. And thanks for being here this morning. I don't know about you, but uh, all my life, God has been faithful. And all my life, he has been so, so good. And uh, I, I just, uh, I love the words of that song. I don't sing it well. But I love the words and I love the thought of it. All my life, he has been so, so good. And I am just thankful for that. Um, I intend this morning to uh, share my gift with you once again, my gift of brevity. Uh, <laughs> last, last, you know, last Lord's Day, we were here uh, uh, long. We, it, it, you know, I think uh, it was afternoon before we finished. And, and that's okay. That's okay every now and then. But uh, I'm going to give you a special gift this morning. You'll be out here in good shape and everything, and we'll have lunch together and, and have some time to spend together over across the street. So thank God for that. Uh, before I begin, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, um, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, God. Uh, use the words that I say this morning, Father, for your glory, for your honor, Father, and also for the building up of your church. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to share this morning. Uh, may all glory and honor and praise go to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> of course, once again, I don't, I don't uh, speak very often, and I don't desire to speak very often. And so, uh, you know, relish this time if you, if you so choose. Uh, my assignment this morning has been to preach from uh, Leviticus chapter 17. And uh, one of the things... Uh, you know, it, it really might really well be said that the central theme of Leviticus is found in chapter 11, verse 44, where God says through Moses, uh, be holy, for I am holy. And, uh, you know, if we think about Leviticus and think about the whole book of Leviticus, uh, even though there's a lot of things we don't get, a lot of things we don't understand, uh, really, that's the theme. That's the thing that I believe that God really wants us to draw from uh, this book of the Bible. And uh, thus, all of these sacrifices and all of these laws, these rules, are in some way or another point us to the holiness of God and his desire to consecrate for himself a holy nation of people uh, being the Israelites. Now, we don't understand what so many of these rules have to do with holiness, but I like what Brother Luke said just a few weeks ago when he equated the law to uh, a team uniform. Uh, the uniform identifies whose team you're on, and in much the same way, the laws of Leviticus identified the people of Israel with the one true God of heaven. And, of course, I think that uh, we can carry this analogy even further when we see this same admonition given to us as Christians as the body of Jesus Christ. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Peter says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And so that same uh, admonition that was given to the children of Israel way back in the wilderness, uh, that applies to us also. Uh, we are to be holy because our God is holy. Our manner of living, our speech, our love for one another, our love for our neighbors should identify us with Jesus Christ, the Holy One. We are seen and we are known as Christ's followers, not by means of a list of rules and regulations like the children of Israel, but rather by the way we live and by the way that we love one another and love our neighbors. Now, I'm going to talk a few minutes this morning about Leviticus chapter 17, which uh, kind of might be seen a little bit as a dividing point uh, between two parts of Leviticus. Uh, chapters 1 through 16 uh, have dealt really primarily kind of with priestly functions. In other words, how the sacrifices were to be offered, uh, how the priests were to be consecrated, uh, you know, and, and how the offerers were to bring their sacrifices. And then beginning in chapter 18, uh, many of the laws deal with uh, relationships between the children of Israel and also between them and their God and everyday living within the people of Israel. Well, then we see also two distinct sections of Leviticus chapter 17, which I'll be talking about. Uh, section uh, verses 1 through 9 really kind of deal with uh, location, so to speak, location. And uh, we'll talk about that for just a little bit. First of all, let's read uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Notice what he says there. He says, if anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed, shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Now, when we look at that passage, what it basically says is that anytime uh, any one of the children of Israel desired to kill a lamb, an ox, or a goat, that it had to be brought to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting, as we read here, and offered as a peace offering or a fellowship offering. In other words, if you were going to slaughter an animal for food for your family, then it must be brought to the priest where it could be properly butchered. Uh, the blood and the fat uh, would be offered on the altar, and the meat would then be returned to the worshiper for him and for his family. Uh, seems like a very strict, uh, re uh, very strict regulation because if you were going to butcher even one of your own flock, then you had to bring it to the tabernacle where it could be done properly. And you remember, uh, the blood, they were not to eat that. That belonged to the Lord. The fat, that belonged to the Lord. So it had to be offered properly, and then the meat would be given back to the worshiper. Now, uh, then we look in verses 8 and 9 of Leviticus 17. Notice once again, And you shall say to them, 
anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Now, that particular ordinance applies to burnt offerings and sacrifices. The passage basically says that all burnt offerings, all sacrifices were to be offered at the tabernacle under the direction of the priests. There were to be no private altars, uh, no burnt sacrifices done anywhere, only at the tabernacle. You remember, uh, that wasn't always the case because, you know, uh, Noah built an altar and he offered burnt sacrifices. Abraham built altars and offered burnt sacrifices as well as all of the uh, patriarchs did. But now we have this strict uh, regulation that the children of Israel were to bring their burnt offerings and sacrifices exclusively to the tent to be offered by the priests. Now, I think that it's best for us to understand that these particular rules and ordinances applied only during the time while the Israelites were in the wilderness. In other words, this was before they entered into the land of Canaan, into the land of promise. Now, why do we say that? Well, notice Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 15, and also verse 21. Uh, Moses says here, However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean, that is the unclean person and the clean person, may eat of it as of the gazelle and of the deer. Once again, verse 21, if the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock, which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. And so basically Moses tells them that you know, once you enter into the land of Canaan, once the land is divided up and every tribe has their own vicinity, has their own locality, their own cities and towns uh, whatsoever, then after that, they could just butcher their flocks or herds anywhere within the promised land. It was anywhere. So during this period, while they were traveling to the promised land and all the nation was together, uh, the tabernacle was right there in the center of them, and it didn't take much for them to travel into the tent of meeting to butcher their lamb herd or their lamb or uh, ox or goat or whatever the case may be, then that's the way they were to do it. But once they came into the promised land and each tribe of Israel established their own towns, then they could butcher their animals at their own homes or whenever they please. But, Burn offerings and sacrifices were always to be brought to the place designated by God and offered by the priest. Now, that's the distinction. Burn offerings and sacrifices always had to be brought to the place designated by God. Notice once again, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. It says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present 
and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. So what we'll learn here, or what we'll learn later as you continue to read in the Old Testament, is that Jerusalem would be the place that God would choose to place his name there. And of course, uh, even later on, uh, a temple would be built on the direction of Solomon, and uh, there would be an altar there. The altar would be located there, and all the furnishings that were in the tabernacle uh, would find their place in the temple. And that would become the official place of worship for the Israelites. Now, a lot more could be said about this place or location of worship for the people of Israel. But I think it's interesting that God designated a particular place where worship was to take place. Throughout the Old Testament, the place of worship and the place of sacrifice would be a major issue for the people of Israel, as many times the Israelites would violate God's commandments and his instruction regarding where and how to offer sacrifices, and it would lead them to, into idolatry and other abuses and things of that nature, and God would not be pleased with the people of Israel. But now, that was them. But the question becomes, what about us today, and what can we draw from any of this? Uh, the question would become, is there a chosen place of worship for us today? You know, so many people would immediately point to the church building as the place of worship. You know, I'm reminded of uh, some years ago when I attended a worship service that was held in the basement of one of the members' homes, and uh, after we were dismissed, uh, one brother came to me and he told me pretty emphatically, uh, Brother McConnell, uh, we need to get us a building. Uh, the church ain't supposed to be in no basement, you know. And, you know, he, his idea uh, of location, located worship, I think, is really one that's shared by so many people today. They look at the church building and they say, well, that's the place where we're supposed to worship. That's the where, place where church is supposed to be held. But in fact, you know, the Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 and 17. Uh, notice what he says to the church at Corinth there. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So notice the Apostle Paul tells uh, the church at Corinth, he says that, no, you are the temple of the living God. In other words, beloved, we are the temple of the living God. God's spirit dwells within us, and wherever we are, that's where the church is. That's where the spirit of God is. That's where the place of worship and sacrifice is. We are the temple of God, and just as the very presence of God came and dwelt among the children of Israel in the tabernacle and later in the temple, his presence dwells with us and in us through his spirit. And therefore, anywhere and everywhere we are, worship is appropriate. We, not in offering of burnt sacrifices, but in the offering of ourselves, through holy living and service to others. Uh, notice uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, a passage very familiar to us, where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says we're to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We do that through the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we treat others, the way that we love. The question becomes, is your worship confined to this building on this particular day? Or is your worship taking place anywhere and everywhere you go where people can know that you are the temple of the living God and that you are offering those acceptable sacrifices to God? To God. In the Gospel of John in chapter 4, when Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman at the well, she asked Jesus to settle uh, a long-running dispute over which place was the proper place of worship. Uh, was it on Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worship, or was it in Jerusalem, where the Jews worship? But notice Jesus' answer in John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. He said, you have heard that it was said, oh, excuse me, wrong passage, uh, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Beloved, according to Jesus, true worship, uh, the worship that God desires and the worship that is acceptable to God, it's not a question of where, but it's worship that flows from within, worship that is sincere and reverent towards God, worship that is considerate of others. And so wherever we are, true worship and the sacrifice of ourselves is acceptable to God. Well, I want to spend just the rest of my short time talking about the latter half or the latter part of Leviticus chapter 17 that primarily prohibits the eating of blood. Notice in verse 10 of chapter 17, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. And he says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You know, this prohibition against eating any blood is one that was given and one that existed long before God's dealing with the Israelites. You know, he gave this same prohibition to Noah back in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 4. And thus, the principle behind this rule has always existed. What he says in verse 14, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. You know, we are really so far removed from most of these Levitical laws that we can only guess why God said, uh, do this, but don't do that, or eat this, but don't eat that, you know, and we don't really understand all of that. 
And I'm sure probably the Israelites probably had a much better understanding of why these rules were given than we do because they were so much closer to it. But you know, God has given us insight into this particular rule. They were not to eat blood because blood represents life. And that makes sense to us, I believe, because if a person or uh, any creature for that matter were to lose its blood, then we know that it's going to die. It's no longer going to live because life of that creature, or us for that matter, is in our blood. And further, God said, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Uh, that is, by the life that is in the blood. In other words, God said, uh, even though we are not allowed to eat blood or consume blood, he said to the Israelites, I've given the blood to you to make atonement for your souls. Simply stated this morning, and something that we've talked about probably throughout our time in Leviticus, is that uh, the penalty for sin is death. But God in his mercy allowed a substitute for the sinner. And therefore, a lamb, a bull, or a goat was offered for the life of the sinner. I think Brother Terry talked a bit about this at length last week. We can point to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, where the Hebrew writer said, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so once again, God said that I have given you the blood on the altar as an atonement for your souls. And even later, the Hebrew writer let us know that without the shedding of blood, there would be no atonement there would be no forgiveness except blood is shed. And so we come to know and understand that Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, shed his blood once for all time, for all people, and for all sin. But beloved, this morning I believe that there's something more that we can probably draw from this principle this principle giving in verse 14 that the life of every creature is in its blood. You know, I don't know necessarily that uh, the prohibition for eating blood still stands for us today, but I believe the principle of blood being the life source still stands, and there's still something that we can draw from it. God prohibited the eating of blood because it is the life source of every creature. God gave the sacrifice of blood as an act of grace in order to atone for sin. But because blood is the life source, only God can give life, and only God has the right to take life. Once again, in Genesis chapter 9, in verse 6, uh, he told Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 17, I think we see this same law repeated. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Now, when we think about that law, 
this life for life law. I'm not sure exactly how this law was always applied in every case, even under the Old Testament. But what it should tell us is that shedding blood, that is taking a life, was a serious matter with God. And the reason is that we were created in the very image of God. And because we as human beings are image bearers, only God has the right to say who lives and who dies. That's God's right. That's God's place. And we have no right to step into that role or into that position. God equates blood as being the source of life. And therefore, when anyone sheds the blood of another person against God's direction, then he commits sin and it is an affront to the one who created life itself. And so, therefore, it is for this reason, I believe, that when we see lives violently and needlessly snuffed out, we're grieved by it because God is grieved by it. God is the giver of life, and any person was created in the image of God because we as human beings, we are image bearers. And that's why it's such a horrible thing when lives are taken by the hundreds and by the thousands in senseless acts of war like we see in places like Ukraine and like we see in Israel. We see men stepping into a role that's not theirs to inhabit when they decide it's time to take the lives of other people. Because God is the giver of life. And only God has the right to decide who lives and who dies. It's a horrible thing when people decide to step into schools and to begin to just needlessly take lives. When in parts of town, people just violently take the lives of other people for no good reason, stepping into a role that's not ours. Beloved, let me close this morning by saying, you know, I know that most of us, if not all of us, can readily agree that taking another man's life is sin, and it's a horrible thing. And you know, we generally, we have no problem with that and understanding that. But you know, I think that uh, Jesus really kind of upped the ante, so to speak, on this law and, and many others. Remember in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know, taking a life may not be something that any of us have an issue with. We know and understand that murder is wrong and None of us is really tempted to take someone's life, I don't believe. But Jesus says that when we are angry with our brother or our sister, 
If we lash out in anger and say things that shouldn't be said, Jesus seems to equate that with murder as well. Brothers and sisters, this morning, where the shedding of blood, once again, it may not be a problem for any of us, but sometimes we do have problems with anger. Sometimes we do have problems with forgiveness. Sometimes we do have problems with saying things to people, friends, coworkers, fellow church members, family members that really shouldn't be said. And Jesus says, and those things will be liable to judgment. So this morning, as you come to the table, think about anybody that you may have an issue with, or even if they have an issue with you. Make the decision this morning, this day, before you come to the table, that I'm going to fix it. If you need to forgive, forgive. If you need to say, I'm sorry, say you're sorry. And take action that needs to be taken. That's my lesson to you this morning. Thank you.